In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash Thanks for your help. The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC. Thanks for your home for joining us this hour. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is President Joe Biden's nominee to be the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. Born in Washington, D.C., raised in Miami, Harvard educated. She was first named to the federal bench by President Barack Obama. She was elevated to the federal appeals court just one level below the Supreme Court uh, last year, uh, confirmed by the Senate for that nomination uh, with several Republican senators voting for her. Judge Jackson has been nominated to take the seat on the Supreme Court that's currently held by Justice Stephen Breyer, who is retiring. Justice, uh, excuse me, Judge Jackson uh, was actually a Supreme Court clerk for Justice Breyer when she was just out of law school. And so there's some nice symmetry to this nomination in that sense. We're going to talk tonight with someone who clerked alongside Judge Jackson on the Supreme Court at that time, uh, someone who's been friends with her ever since. We're also going to speak tonight with Sherilyn Eiffel, head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, who herself was reportedly considered for this nomination. 115 Americans have served on the U.S. Supreme Court since its founding. 115. Of those 115, 108 have been white men. If Judge Jackson is confirmed, she'd be the third ever African-American justice, and she would be the first ever black woman on the United States Supreme Court. And uh, to give you some sort of real politics here for a second, um, in my opinion, there is a reason you have not heard anything more than the standard level background noise whining from Republicans about this nomination today. Uh, And that is because Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is a profoundly and unquestionably qualified nominee. Someone for whom they're really going to have to stretch to try to portray her as some kind of scary monster. And they will undoubtedly try to portray her as some sort of scary monster, for sure. But barring some continent-sized asteroid smashing into the process somehow, Judge Jackson, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, is going to be confirmed. She is going to be the next associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, and that will be lifetime tenure. Again, later on this hour, we're going to be speaking with her, uh, someone, who, someone who knows her well and has known her well uh, for a very long time. So that's coming up. Big day, historic day, consequential day. Uh, today, I learned that when professional tennis stars um, win big matches, one thing they do, it's kind of a weird new-ish tradition. I don't know how long this has been going on. Uh, but a thing they sometimes do is they take a marker, they take a pen, and they write something on the lens of a TV camera that has been covering the match they just won. How did this start? I don't know. Uh, but this is a thing they do. Here's Naomi Osaka uh, drawing this little cat. That's a thing she does. Um, This is an Italian guy who won a match even though he had the stomach flu. What he wrote on the camera lens was, thank you, Imodium. (laughs) Imodium, grazie. (laughs) Which is really funny if you have a six-year-old sense of humor, which I absolutely do. 
this is a thing that tennis stars do when they win matches. Um, right now, there's a big pro tennis tournament on in Dubai, and a Russian player named Andrei Rublev, R-U-B-L-E-V, Andrei Rublev, uh, he's ranked number seven in the world. He's at that Dubai tournament, and he won a match there that will advance him to the final. When he won today's match, uh, he didn't say anything, but he did walk over to the nearest TV camera, and he took out a pen, and he wrote on the camera lens, no war, please. Again, he's the number seven ranked men's tennis player in the world. He is Russian. This was his note to the camera today upon winning that match. Uh, The number one ranked U.S. man in the world is also Russian. His name is Daniel Medvedev. He is playing at a big tournament in Mexico right now. Um, This was his wife sitting in the stands watching him at that Mexico tournament. We drop the lower third there so you can see what she's wearing. We drop that. There it is. She's wearing a shirt in the colors of the Ukrainian flag while she was in the stands there watching her husband play again. He's the number one ranked men's tennis player in the world. The most famous Russian athlete in the whole world is the massive hockey star Alex Ovechkin, who plays for the National Hockey League in the United States. Ovechkin has previously been an outspoken supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin. But today he told reporters, quote, please, no more war. At home in Russia, the biggest star on that country's wildly popular national soccer team uh, is a striker named Fedor Smolov, S-M-O-L-O-V, Mr. Smolov. He just posted on Instagram, no to war, with the Ukrainian flag and a broken heart emoji next to it. International Soccer just announced that Russia will no longer be allowed to host the Champions League final. They were going to be hosting that in St. Petersburg in May. That, yank, that, that match has been yanked from Russia now. Uh, Formula One car racing has also pulled its next major race out of Russia. Uh, the Eurovision Song Contest announced today that Russia will not be allowed to have a team compete in this year's Eurovision. And as Americans, we don't tend to care that much about the Eurovision Song Contest, but it, it is an absolute national obsession in Russia and across most most of Europe. Russia's been kicked out of it for this year. Global airlines have started to announce that they'll stop code sharing with the Russian national airline Aeroflot, which means you won't be able to book your flight through, uh, including any flights by Aeroflot. Aeroflot is the national airline of Russia, but after Russia itself, it is the United States that's the second largest generator of revenue for that airline. That will now basically zero out with American, uh, various American air carriers uh, no longer code sharing, no longer allowing cross-booking um, for their flights with Aeroflot. The United Kingdom is just flat out banning Aeroflot flights from their airspace. In response, Russia has retaliated by banning all British carriers from Russian airspace. You know, and and each of these things is, I I know, it's a little Lego in a larger brick wall. Sports stars saying a thing, you know, cultural things being canceled, sports things being pulled out of Russia, business decisions. They're all little Lego blocks. But they're adding up to a wall that is starting to amount to global ostracism, global pariah status for Russia, thanks to the actions of their president, Vladimir Putin. And it's one thing for a country to do something unpopular and to be treated as such globally. It is another thing for a nation's leader to do something like that while his own people hate what he's doing. For Vladimir Putin, this moment of global ostracism 
global pariah status comes as his own people hate it. Russian music stars, Russian cultural figures, now the biggest sports figures in the country, they are all braving the considerable wrath of that dictatorship to speak out publicly against this insane war that Putin has started. Everyday Russians all over that country, even though Russians are being threatened with prosecution as rioters and terrorists, if they dare to turn up to any sort of protest against the, the war in Ukraine. Yesterday, Russian citizens were arrested for protesting anyway in more than 50 different Russian cities. Today, another 500 Russian citizens were arrested for again defying their increasingly unhinged government to go protest in the streets against Putin waging this war. Putin's spokesman is a man named Dmitry Peskov. Today, Peskov's daughter posted an anti-war protest message on social media. She posted no to war online. She later deleted it. But again, she's the daughter of Putin's spokesman. The UN Security Council today took up a resolution condemning Russia starting this war in Ukraine. Russia's on the Security Council, and they, of course, vetoed it, which was not a surprise. What was a surprise is that absolutely no one stood with them. Uh, China has made a big show recently of their new alliance with Russia, but China did not vote with Russia today. China did not vote no the way Russia wanted them to. Russia instead stood alone in their no vote. China decided they would just abstain. If the idea here is that Russia must be isolated, that Putin must be globally ostracized, that he must know that he stands alone and in the wrong, today really was that kind of a day. After even China wouldn't stand with him at the UN, something even more surprising happened in the part of the world that Putin really thinks he owns. The nation of Kazakhstan is a huge country, like Ukraine, like Russia, it used to be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Kazakhstan has a gigantic land border with Russia. It's considered to be one of Russia's closest allies. This afternoon, NBC News reports that Kazakhstan has refused a request from Russia about this war. Russia had apparently asked Kazakhstan to send its own troops to go join Russia in its war in Ukraine. They also asked Kazakhstan to join Russia in recognizing the independence of these two parts of Ukraine that Russia is trying to peel off and claim for themselves. To both of those requests, the request for troops and the request to recognize the independence of those parts of Ukraine, Kazakhstan said no to both of them. And, you know, quite clearly, Vladimir Putin is perturbed by, you know, independent thinking out of a country like Ukraine. But he really, really is not used to a country like Kazakhstan telling him no on anything. But today they told him no on joining him in this war. This was the capital city of Georgia today, the nation of Georgia, Tbilisi. Uh, Georgia was also a former Soviet state. It is also a place that Vladimir Putin expects to be under his thumb. Putin invaded Georgia. You'll remember, took over parts of it in 2008, playing much the same playbook that he's playing now in the much larger nation of Ukraine. Well, today, tens of thousands of people in Georgia turned out to say no to Putin, to say no to this war that he's waging against Ukraine. Watch what they said here in this clip. This is those tens of protesters in Tbilisi, in the capital of Georgia, and they're saying Zelensky, Zelensky. They are chanting the name of the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. 
Late last night, in a video call with leaders of the European Union, uh, Axios was first to report that Volodymyr Zelensky told the other leaders on that call, quote, this might be the last time you ever see me alive. U.S. intelligence has been oddly prescient during this whole crisis. U.S. intelligence has said publicly that, in fact, one goal of the Russian war is to kill President Volodymyr Zelensky, specifically to hunt him down personally and kill him. Today, he posted this video to social media, himself and senior members of his administration standing outside in Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv, saying, we are here, we are in Kyiv, we are staying, we will stay to defend Ukraine, to defend our independence. Tonight, he released this video, an address to the people of Ukraine, basically trying to prepare them for the worst, saying that the Russian military will storm Kyiv and will try to take it by force. He says they, quote, will use all the force available to break our resistance. He said, quote, they will make an assault upon us. We all have to understand what we are going to face. This night, we have to withstand. He said, quote, the fate of Ukraine is being decided right now. Today on Ukrainian television, they started giving people instructions on how to make Molotov cocktails at home for regular people to use against the Russian invasion. President Zelensky and his government have called on all able Ukrainians to enlist in the military or to start fighting as civilians to defend where they live. He's calling on Ukrainians living anywhere, anywhere in the world who may have any military experience to please come back to Ukraine to join in the fight. And day by day, we are seeing Ukrainians, yes, you know, doing things like lining up to give blood. Richard Engel interviewed people who are lining up to give blood today. Uh, But also people lining up to enlist, to take up weapons. And, you know, I feel like, especially as Americans, but for lots and lots of countries around the world, there is a lot of mythology that you build up around moments like this about demands for this kind of bravery, you know, answering the call of your country. But aside from any, you know, romance or fantasy we may have about moments like this, I mean, getting real about it, what's happening in Ukraine right now really is about trying to have a civilian population stand up. Regular people using small arms they've never used before and homemade firebombs they made at home in the sink. This is about having a civilian population in a normal, modern city of 4 million people. It's about having a city of regular people stand up and fight personally against the Russian army and its tanks and its missiles. The Pentagon said today that the same U.S. intelligence that has been so accurate in predicting that Russia was going to attack and how they were going to do it, uh, the Pentagon said today that that same intelligence now indicates that Russia isn't having as easy a time of it as they thought they would. Russia had made plans about how fast they would move, how fast they would take the capital city of Kiev, and they are behind schedule. They are not hitting their objectives. It's turning out to be more of a slog. Ukrainians are putting up more of a fight than the Russians guessed they would, more of a fight than the Russians had planned for. And again, it is easy to turn that into an inspirational thing. It's easy to write the ballad of that in your mind. But an up-armored, mechanized, huge, modern military against a civilian population is something that starts terrible, that is terrible in the middle, and that ends terribly, always. There aren't any foreign troops that are coming to force multiply the small Ukrainian armed forces. 
Uh, NATO announced today that for the first time they're activating a reaction force, their um, response force. This is the first time they've done this for this kind of a conflict in history. And that is tens of thousands of, of well-equipped troops, but they're going to stay on NATO soil. And Ukraine is not a NATO member and Ukraine is where the war is. As the Russian military attacks Kyiv tonight and other major cities and population centers of Ukraine, Ukrainians are fighting against them alone. They're fighting them well so far, but they're alone. And the United States and our European allies today, they did take a new step today that just this time last night, I was here on TV explaining why they really weren't likely to do it. Uh, some seemed like something they really weren't going to do. And today they decided to do it. Today they decided to levy personal sanctions against Russian President Vladimir Putin. There's a million reasons why they hadn't done it before now. There's a, there were a million reasons to expect that they might never do it. It is a big deal. It is very rare. This puts Vladimir Putin on the same international framework as the, the head of North Korea, right? Uh, or Bashar al-Assad in Syria. That, that sort of punishment targeted at Putin personally is a no going back from it kind of decision. And it's something neither Europe nor the U.S. was willing to do until today they decided to do it. We've got a sanctions expert tonight standing by to talk to us about why that is such a huge freaking deal and why that was realistically an unexpected development. And in Mariupol tonight in southeastern Ukraine, we have our friend Richard Engel, NBC's chief foreign correspondent, who is live in the middle of the night uh, in a part of that country that has just been besieged today. Uh, Richard, thank you for being with us tonight. Again, I know it is uh, the middle of the night where you are. Tell us about what the day has been like. Tell us what you've been seeing tonight. So this is a, a difficult day because we are now seeing the Russian army moving on the cities, moving on the capital, trying to take Ukraine in one foul swoop. They hope that by knocking out the capital, knocking out Zelensky, that they can install a puppet regime and, and win the whole country and then enact a campaign of repression. And I've been speaking with uh, intelligence officials. I've been speaking with uh, with locals here, with local commanders. And the reason they're fighting so hard and they are fighting hard is because they know what is at stake if they lose. They not only lose their democracy, but they completely anticipate that there will be a campaign of repression carried out against them. And U.S. officials have been warning about this. And U.S. officials have said that they've drawn up kill lists and Ukrainians believe them. They believe that uh, what would be what would follow a, a a loss of this country to to Vladimir Putin uh, would be a campaign of human rights abuses and war crimes, potentially carried out by a force called the Rose Guardia. And uh, they are, I've been told, the ones to watch out for. That they will be the the ones enforcing a uh, a crackdown uh, and trying to quote pacify the population. So if they don't hold out, they know that that they could lose everything. Richard, we did hear from the Pentagon today um, that as far as U.S. intelligence knows about Russia's own expectations for this incursion, they're behind schedule. Uh, they haven't been going as fast as they intended to go or that they expected to go. Uh, we also had confirmation from the Pentagon today that it doesn't seem like there's anywhere in the country that Russian forces, any, any city, any population center in the nation of Ukraine where Russian forces are in control or they're actually holding territory. Um, is, is this just a matter of, of pacing or is there any way 
for us to tell from your conversations with military leaders and, and, and intelligence sources, is there any way to tell whether Russia's basically proceeding according to plan or whether they're having more trouble than they expected? So they are having more trouble than expected. They were slow coming in from the north. They had trouble crossing a river when they came down from Belarus. Uh, the Ukrainians have knocked out several bridges also in the north, which has been slowing them down. Uh, they face some fairly heavy fighting in the south, uh, but they, uh, the forces were taking their time controlling the canals out of uh, the, the Crimean Peninsula that controls the flow of, of water to the peninsula. But the, the biggest factor, and which has some, some Western officials surprised, is that Russia hasn't put all of its forces into this fight yet. Uh, they only have about a third of their forces committed. So they still have a lot of fight left in them, uh, uh, that only that about two thirds of their force remain in, on, on the borders in Russian territory ready to be deployed. So uh, it's only day two, and the Ukrainians have been holding out well, and uh, Western officials are impressed with the fighting spirit of Zelensky, but they know that Russia has a numerically superior and technologically superior army, which it has largely kept still in Russia, but which uh, apparently it plans to plans to deploy at some stage, and it is unclear why it has not deployed the full force yet. Richard Engel, NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent. As you say, Richard, this, is a, this has been a difficult day. This is a dark day um, and a long day ahead for you tomorrow. Stay safe, my friend. Thank you. All right. Last night um, on this show, we talked about just how big of a deal it is uh, to levy sanctions against a president, uh, a prime minister, a head of state. It is something that very, very, very rarely happens because doing that closes off other doors, closes off every other normal way you might interact with that head of state. It is something that only happens once the United States has decided uh, that there's never going to be po a point in talking to that leader ever again. There's no opportunities for negotiations. Sanctioning a, a, a world leader, sanctioning a head of state is essentially a declaration that that leader is considered to be illegitimate and shouldn't be negotiated with, shouldn't be talked to, shouldn't be treated um, according to their title. Well, tonight, uh, the U.S., along with Canada and the U.K. and the E.U., they've gone ahead and done it against Vladimir Putin. They have levied personal sanctions against President Putin. I cannot say how rare this is. Or in the world of sanctions, what a big deal it is. In order to make sense of this all, uh, we're going to be joined once again tonight by Hagar Chamali. She was a senior policy advisor in the Treasury Sanctions Division during the Obama administration. She was a Treasury spokesperson when the U.S. imposed sanctions on Russia in 2014 when they took over Crimea. I should tell you she also hosts... Oh My World on YouTube. Uh, Hagar Chamali, thank you so much for being with us again tonight. As soon as we got this news today, uh, I asked my team if we could please get you back because of uh, I felt you helped us understand this so well last night. Oh, I, well, I'm happy to be here, Rachel. Thank you for having me again. 
As you said so well, these sanctions are a big deal. I was surprised by them when I saw them announced today because it usually takes time to reach this point. And granted, this war has moved at an unprecedented pace, right? So Treasury has been very nimble and it's been great to see that. It takes a lot of work to prepare any kind of sanction. It's not just a press release, right? It's an evidentiary proving that the person's been engaged in sanctionable behavior. It's uh, getting every agency to sign off on it. It's declassifying intelligence. So the fact that they move that quickly and to use this sanction in particular is important because it, it carries this message that you just said. It's saying that you are a criminal, you are a thug, you are not worth dealing with, you're not a rational person to have a diplomatic engagement or negotiation with, we're done. And he's joining a very exclusive club of thugs, which basically only includes, as you said, North Korea's leader, Venezuela's Maduro, Syria's Assad, and Sudan's Bashir. And I believe that's it. So this was a big deal. I was very surprised by how fast they got to this point. And on a practical level, how does this affect President Putin? I mean, for years, uh, you hear people say that the richest man on earth is President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And I don't know if that's true, but uh, I've certainly spent uh, a considerable amount of time watching the exposés by anti-corruption activists and people like Alexei Navalny in Russia who have exposed evidence of Putin's secret wealth and the secret wealth of those in his sort of uh, in his coterie at the, at the top of the Russian government. So his his assets appear to be considerable and also to be appear to be considerably well hidden. What is this going to mean for him in in practical terms? What's it going to mean for his life? Well, also, by the way, on his assets, they may be hidden to us, but they might not necessarily be hidden to governments that sanctioned him. And that's important. And I'll get to it. Why? So the, re, the, the practical effect, first, the practical effect of any sanction is that that target, if they have any assets within U.S. jurisdiction, so that could be not just in the United States, but in our banks abroad and so on, those assets are frozen. And all U.S. persons, meaning businesses, organizations, individuals, cannot do business with that person, right? And it always, as I said yesterday, it unleashes these market forces because people around the world, even if their country didn't sanction this individual, they themselves will end up steering clear of doing business with that target because they don't want to risk their reputation. They don't want to get in the crosshairs of U.S. sanctions. The way this could hit him in particular, he is not impervious to this, right? He's not shielded from sanctions. And there are a few reasons for that. First, he very likely does have assets around the world, even if those assets are in some kind of hidden front company or, or account that doesn't necessarily have his name on it. These governments may well very know that that he is the beneficial owner of those accounts and they will happily go to those financial institutions in private and let them know so that they can close it. So that's the first. Hmm. The second is this actually has a practical effect on him moving around the world, selling assets around the world, traveling. And that's because he legally can't even buy a ticket to leave his country. He can't unless it's China, I guess. He can't spend money elsewhere wherever he's been sanctioned because nobody can legally accept his money, right? So this is going to be very isolating to him. And third is that if if he ends up converting all of his assets to rubles, and but we are not able to, to, to freeze them or seize them or whatever it might be, that in and of itself is a really bad consequence of sanctions for him because as as we heard yesterday rubles hit their lowest point ever so that's not exactly a lucrative move 
Agar Chamali, uh, former senior policy advisor in the Treasury Sanction Division and the person who makes these things make sense. Um, you are an incredibly effective communicator about these complex things. Thank you so much for helping us understand tonight. It's a big deal. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. All right. We've got much more to come here tonight. Do stay with us. Wow. Big night. The U.N. Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. Judge Motley's life and career has been a true inspiration to me as I have pursued this professional path. And if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Her name is Katanji Brown Jackson. She is a federal appeals court judge. Today she was officially nominated to be the newest associate justice on the Supreme Court of the United States, nominated by President Joe Biden. In introducing Judge Jackson today, President Biden said, quote, for too long, our government and our courts have not looked like America. I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications. Those qualifications are extraordinary. Uh, she went to Harvard Law. She was a clerk to the retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, whose seat she may be about to ascend to. She spent eight years as a federal district court judge. She's now a federal appeals court judge. And while that is a very impressive resume, if you look at all the other justices on the court, for good or for ill, that frankly sounds like a Supreme Court resume these days. But Judge Jackson also brings unique experience to the court. She'd be the only justice besides Justice Sotomayor to have experience as a trial court judge. She'd also be the first Supreme Court justice ever to have experience working as a public defender. Joining us now is Sherilyn Eiffel. She is president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Ms. Eiffel, it is an honor and pleasure to see you tonight. Thank you so much for making time. It's a historic night. It is indeed, and welcome back, Rachel. Thank you. Um, let me just ask you um, if you think Judge Jackson uh, will be confirmed, whether you think this will be politically a controversial nomination, um, and what kind of Supreme Court justice you think she'll make if she, in fact, is confirmed. Well, I think that um, I think everyone knows uh, that that Judge Jackson will be confirmed. 
She was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals last year uh, by a vote of 53 to 44. Uh, she garnered the votes of three Republicans, including Senator Lindsey Graham. You just described her record, Rachel, as one that is very moderate, highly accomplished, uh, and looks very much like the resume of others on the Supreme Court. The only difference is that she's a Black woman um, and the first Black woman who will sit on that court. Uh, so I know she'll be confirmed, but that doesn't mean that it's an easy road. We already see today uh, Judge Jackson being called out of her name and out of her record, um, being described as a radical leftist. Um, the suggestion that that's, there's something about her that uh, means that we should beware and that we should uh, have caution. And this has been the, the history of those trailblazing judges like Thurgood Marshall and like Constance Baker Motley, the first black woman federal judge who uh, Judge Jackson referenced today. When uh, Judge Motley was nominated to, to sit on the Southern District of New York to become a federal district court judge, there were senators who were trolling through her record and insisting that when she was 19 years old, she had been affiliated with communists. Uh, if you read the transcript of Thurgood Marshall's confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court, it is shameful. And this is after he had already been confirmed as Solicitor General and as a judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So we've seen this playbook. They can't stop the train, but their hope is to try to degrade and undermine um, the historic and really beautiful and important moment uh, that we are seeing. And I appreciate President Biden for describing it in the way he did. For too long, our government hasn't looked like us. But, you know, I connected, Rachel, with your earlier segment about the Ukraine, a country that is being overtaken uh, by this hostile power that comes to crush it. Crush it. Um, you know, it reminds us of how important it is to fight for your democracy. And what we have seen over the past six or seven years is our democracy crumbling from within. Um, and how we strengthen our democracy is we live up to our ideals. We demonstrate that uh, there is equality, that there's justice, that there's opportunity, that all members of our society can participate. And we recognize the need, particularly for uh, the branch of government responsible for interpreting the law, to do so in a way that includes multiple perspectives from people of different experiences and backgrounds to decide what the law is. In terms of her unique experience, it would be unique on the court, her experience as a public defender. Uh, can you speak to that in terms of the importance of how the court works um, and the kind of the significance of that sort of a perspective among those nine judges, uh, th those nine judges on that peerless court? Well, I think there's two pieces here. One is that she served for two years at a, as a federal public defender. That is true. She also served for uh, four years on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, including a period as vice chair of that commission. And she's seen as an expert on sentencing. Um, much of what's been talked about today is her record of compassionate releases and her commitment to com compassionate releases. Um, she knows things that many of the justices on the court don't know about. Um, you know, I don't think there are any justices on the court at this moment who've actually represented uh, individuals who have been convicted of crimes. Um, this is something that that is important. You know, our justice system is balanced by two sides. And what we have seen happen on the federal bench writ large and on the Supreme Court is it becoming tilted in favor of those whose background is as prosecutors. Even Justice Sotomayor was famously uh, a, a Manhattan prosecutor. Um, and so what we're going to see is someone who's had the experience of being on the other side uh, of the table and who has argued appellate cases on behalf of people who have been 
convicted of crimes. And that means she has a different lens. This is the lens that Thurgood Marshall had. Of course, he had uh, represented countless uh, people who had been accused of crimes and convicted of crimes. But that perspective is important. And then on the Sentencing Commission, she's had an opportunity to really wrestle with the reality and disparities uh, in federal sentencing and what that disparity means to the legitimacy of our justice system. So she has experience to bring. And then, of course, she is a black woman. Um, And if you have been a black woman attorney, you have had experiences that are different uh, often than your white counterparts in your interactions and how you have been treated and what has been expected of you. Um, And she's experiencing it right now in the way that people are distorting her record uh, and suggesting that something about her is uh, dangerous or nefarious. So she is bringing all of that to that table. And what we'll be looking for in the confirmation hearings is, you know, hearing her, how she sees her own experiences in that perspective. Uh, LDF does a deep dive into the civil rights record of every Supreme Court nominee. And we're doing that with her as well. And we'll release a report uh, in the next 10 days or so about uh, the hmm. kinds of uh, you know, issues we care about um, in terms of her civil rights record. We do that for every nominee, no matter what president has nominated them. And we think it's important. Um, for us to, to, to examine that. But she'll have an opportunity to describe her record, to explain her record, to share her vision. Um, and we welcome that opportunity. This was an exciting day. She presented herself wonderfully uh, in her presentation. I think we were all a little bit choked up seeing the first Black woman vice president and the first Black woman nominee to the Supreme Court. And it's a, just a reminder to us as we see democracy threatened about what it means to lean in even with everything that's happening, hold, uphold the principles that you believe in, understand that democracies are strengthened from within first, and they can't withstand uh, attack unless they are strong within. This today felt like a democracy move that I'd hoped to see when I was a young girl and that I'm so proud I was able to see today. Beautifully said. Um, Sherilyn Eiffel is the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund and uh, the best bet you could possibly make for who will be the second African-American woman nominated to the United States Supreme Court. You don't give up. At least if there's any justice in the world. (laughs) I do not give up. I'm never going to get to make the call, but I'm going to keep trying to make the call. Uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, (laughs) thank thank you you so much, my friend. It's great to have you here. All right. We'll be right back. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday.
for all the geopolitics, for all the drama and the diplomacy, uh, at the human level, these are just bluntly terrifying times for our fellow human beings who live in the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv. Uh, for the second straight night tonight, loud explosions and heavy gunfire have been heard in the capital city. Just a few hours ago, Ukraine's president told Kyiv residents to prepare for what could be a long and difficult night with Russian forces expected to be storming the city. Ukrainian officials say Russian troops are approaching Kyiv from the north through Belarus and also from areas under Russian control in the east of Ukraine. Ukrainian artillery and tanks have also been seen moving through the city of Kyiv. Earlier today, we saw reports of thousands of Ukrainian volunteers lining up at recruitment centers to receive weapons, to try to fight on their own, to try to help their own country's military withstand the assault. The UN estimates that more than 50,000 people have already left Ukraine. 100,000 more have been displaced inside Ukraine, and many others are just trapped where they are with no real way to move around. One of them is a man named Alexander Prokhorenko. He's a restaurant owner. He lives in central Kyiv. Uh, two nights ago, the building where he lives, he says, was, was full. Life was almost normal. Today, that same apartment building in Kyiv is virtually empty. He's now passing the hours inside with a small group of neighbors and friends that remained. They are cooking together, eating together, trying to support each other, and trying to find a way out. At first, they took refuge inside one apartment in the building, but hearing explosions and air raid sirens, they decided they needed to stay away from exposed doors and windows. They decided they would all go underground. Uh, they grabbed pool chairs and, and pillows. They've made improvised beds, and they are staying now in the underground garage at their apartment. Alexander told us today the place feels like a bunker. Uh, but even down there, they can still hear the explosions and the sirens outside. Alexander and his group of neighbors, they say they hope to leave the city actually just in a few hours, but they don't know if they'll be able to. They've got a car packed, but at this, as of this point, they don't have any gas. They have enough food for a few days, but they also really have nowhere to go. Joining us now live from Kiev is uh, Kiev resident and restaurant owner Alexander Prokhorenko. Uh, Mr. Prokhorenko, I'm really grateful to you for joining us tonight. Uh, I hope you're okay. Yes. Good evening, which is basically good morning in Kiev, but yeah. not really Can good. Well, tell us yeah, how I you've been living, um, you and your neighbors, these past few days. Well, we've been living, uh, we woke up uh, like two days ago with a uh, large alarm uh, saying that, you know, we are under attack. So we, went, we all went to the basement, you know, we we, we knew what we we're gonna do, but still, it was a you know, it was a mass panic. Uh, you know, people started to leave uh, uh, the city, you know, straight away. And there was a, there is still a big traffic jams, like it, you know, to the west, to the eastern, to the western Ukraine. So you know, people that usually make their way to Lviv or Ivano-Frankivsk, which takes them like six to ten hours, they they spend there like twenty four or twenty eight hours just in the traffic jam, moving slowly to uh, other parts of Ukraine where it's more safe. But basically, we, we know that there is no safe place now anywhere in Ukraine. So, it, Do you think that your best option is still to get out on the road and to try to get west, to try to get uh, potentially across a, an EU border nation? Well, you never know. So it's, it's, I think it's, you know, we, we decided to stay on, 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 on one place because we're all together, but still, uh, well, from, from yesterday morning, 
uh, till now, almost everybody left from this building. So it was almost around a hundred people here. But since we heard that, you know, that the troops are uh, military troops uh, of Russia are moving towards the Kiev, we started to hear to hear the explosions, started to hear gunfires, and and we watched the news. So. Again, the, the, the third or second row of panic happened again, and people just started to move out. I don't, I don't think there is a safe place either to stay or to go. You know, we, we don't know. But uh, people, as you said before, pe- people are getting uh, getting uh, guns and you know to protect the city, not just Kiev, but every city in Ukraine. But you know, when we are asking everybody to help us, you know, to, uh, we are saying to the world please help us you know don't be silent this is this is this is our message you know we don't want to fight we don't want war we never wanted a war you know we are good uh, and happy country so your president um made a appeal essentially essentially gave a warning to residents of kiev tonight saying it is going to get bad um the expectations are that it's bad um they've also called for people to anybody you can fight to fight um, I, I guess I feel like uh, us watching from the outside, we, your president is very visible and there's a lot of concern that Russian troops are going to come in and try to find him and kill him and proverbially decapitate the government uh, and replace it with some sort of Russian puppet regime. I have to ask if, if seeing him make the kind of public pronouncements that he's made, seeing him do, staying in Kiev and talking the way that he is to you and other Kiev residents, if that's at all heartening to you or how you feel about that. Well, we we feel a strong support from the president because you know he, he's uh, he's always reporting uh, uh, the latest news of uh, what we did and uh, where is the enemy and what we're gonna do. Yes, and yesterday we got all his message. He's very active in the Instagram and saying that he's there and uh, all of his team is there. So uh, and we feel uh, you know like we are all united and uh, but you know. But still, we're a little country. We cannot uh, fight against big military uh, government as Russia. So this is this is, uh. yeah. Kiev resident, uh, restaurant owner Alexander Prokhorenko, uh, Mr. Prokhorenko, uh, good luck to you and your neighbors with everything that you're going through. Um, keep us surprised. Stay in touch with us. Let us know um, what we can do. We'd love to be in touch as you go through this journey. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And we're looking, looking to the to the world and 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 uh, to the world support. Please uh, don't stay aside. You know we're we're waiting for for you and for the whole world to support us and to help us. Thank you very much. God bless you. Good luck to you. All right, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Every Supreme Court justice has a small squad of clerks who do a surprising amount of the heavy lifting of the legal work of the court. Uh, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's just been nominated by President Biden to the Supreme Court, uh, she served as a clerk. She was a Supreme Court clerk to Justice Stephen Breyer, the retiring Supreme Court justice whose seat she may soon inherit. When Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was nominated to the Federal Appeals Court last year, Every single clerk who served on the Supreme Court at the same time as her, all the clerks for all the liberal justices and all the clerks for all the conservative justices, they all unanimously signed an enthusiastic endorsement of her for that judgeship. 
Well, now that she's nominated for the Supreme Court, we're joined tonight here on this show by one of those clerks who signed that letter. Amanda Tyler is a professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. She was a Supreme Court clerk alongside Ketanji Brown-Jackson. They've been friends ever since. Uh, Professor Tyler, it is a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Um, does the public rollout, the public presentation of uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson um, match your understanding of her as a friend and as a colleague? Absolutely. Uh, today has been such a special and, and historic day, a day to celebrate. This is a spectacular nomination by the president, Justice, uh, soon to be, I keep doing that all day, soon to be Justice <laughs> Jackson, I hope. Uh, Judge Jackson now is someone who brings, as you've highlighted, impeccable credentials, the credentials you want, uh, you expect for a Supreme Court justice, incredible experience. But she also, on top of all of that, is just an extraordinary human being who is brilliant, who has impeccable judgment, who has great unimpeachable character, who is wise. And that is something that I've known for decades that I saw clerking alongside her. Um, who is thoughtful, who is careful. If you read her opinions, they're meticulous and they show both a comfort level getting into the weeds of the thorniest, most complicated legal problems, but also an ability to step back and contextualize the issue that is before the court and, and sort of see the forest for the trees. And this is something that explains the broad support, for example, among our clerk family. I, I should note that the letter was not signed by every single clerk. Some clerks actually could not have signed it. Some are sitting judges, but there oh. were representatives from all nine chambers. And that I think is really significant. You have support for her from clerks for Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, Chief Justice Rehnquist, not just myself and, and my co-clerks in the Ginsburg chambers, but clerks from across the spectrum. And that's an indication of how broadly and deeply she was respected by her peers. As you mentioned, you, you clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, if Judge Jackson does become Justice Jackson, she will become the fourth woman on the court. It'll be the most women that have ever been on the court. I wonder what you make about what that dynamic um, might mean significantly in terms of the way the court runs and the way they make their decisions. Well, you know, obviously today is historic for lots of reasons, most especially that she'll be the first black woman nominated and I hope swiftly confirmed to the court. But you're right, she'll be the fourth woman. And this is a first. Right now we have three. That's a first. It was not very long ago that Justice Ginsburg was the only woman on the Supreme Court for several years between Justice O'Connor's retirement and Justice Sotomayor joining her on that court. And I can tell you, she was really unhappy during those years. And mm. so um, it's really special now to think about a court with four women on it. Uh, we're not quite to Justice Ginsburg's dream of when there are, when there are nine, but uh, we're certainly making up some ground. UC Berkeley Law Professor uh, Amanda Tyler, a longtime friend of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the new Supreme Court nominee announced today by President Biden. Uh, Professor Tyler, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is going to do it uh, for us for now. The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC.